0: Was I still committed to justice, reconciliation, when it was painful and where also I could see it was going to cost me something? I could choose to deal with it, but for the African Americans and the people in the neighborhood, they had to deal with race and poverty whether they wanted to or not.
1: Today on First Person, a true story of race, friendship, and faith in the heart of the South. Welcome to this week's conversation. In a moment, you'll meet Chris Rice, who's devoting his life to be an ambassador of Christ's reconciliation. Before you meet Chris, though, a reminder to visit our webpage at firstpersoninterview.com to learn even more about today's guest and follow links to his life's work. Just go to firstpersoninterview.com where you'll also find our calendar of upcoming guests and an archive of past programs. You can also follow us online at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. Today, Chris Rice serves as the director of the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School. He is also the director of the Global Reconciliation Network. But in 1981, he was a white college student who decided to take a few months off from his studies to live in a tough urban neighborhood in Mississippi. There he met Dr. John Perkins and a man who eventually became his best friend, Spencer Perkins. I met Chris at Wheaton College in the offices of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics, and we talked about how he ended up in Mississippi.
0: Well, I ended up there through an interruption. I was a college student in Vermont, and um, I had grown up as a, as a missionary kid in South Korea. So Vermont was a huge shift, and I was there in Vermont. It was the middle of winter, a uh, rural state, a very white state, and um, a man named John Perkins um, came to speak at Middlebury. I'd never heard of him, but his, his whole body as an African-American from Mississippi was an interruption of the world of of Middlebury College, and John shared his story, and I was completely captivated and uh he he told about growing up in Mississippi and the the violence and poverty that he experienced and talked about a new community that he had founded How old were you in, in the jackson time? i was i was uh i was i guess about nineteen years old right in the middle of college yeah yeah. That story stuck with me after John left. I took him to the airport. Um, I remember he, he, he did a Bible study, a uh, spontaneous Bible study, about 6 a.m. It was freezing cold. There were just two of us in the car. It was like he was preaching to 2,000 people. <laughs> and he captivated me. So about a year later, I decided to take a year off school. And uh, half of that time, the latter half, I, volu- I went to Mississippi and uh, volunteered, um... To serve for six months in the ministry that John had started, he impacted you that much. He he's yeah. done that so
1: many times to so many people, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, I think John is a uh, is um, anointed as an apostle, hmm. and uh, with that kind of anointing, it's kind of a power that's beyond him. Um, but that story just had a lot in it, and uh, so so I went to Mississippi for six months at the age of of, of twenty one and ended up staying for, for 17 years. <laughs> yeah, it, what, cha- it changed my life. What were your first impressions? I was scared. I'd never been in an inner-city neighborhood. Um, it was an all-black neighborhood. Deep I, in the south. Yeah, Jackson, Mississippi, the capital of um, you know, what, what I consider the heart of racial darkness in America. I knew a lot of stories from Mississippi. In fact, my father had been in Mississippi in 1964. ...during the Freedom Summer. Um, So I knew the stories of Mississippi. And uh, so it was an all-black neighborhood. um, And I remember hearing what I thought were firecrackers the first night, but they were gunshots. (laughs) I'd never heard gunshots before in my neighborhood. So it was very scary. It was a foreign... It was like entering... It was really like entering a foreign country where people spoke a different language, had a different history... And where I felt like a uh, an outsider, but I was completely captivated by the life of this community—a of voice of Calvary, of blacks and whites living in the same zip code, working in ministry together every day, housing, economic development, education, healthcare, etc., worshiping together on Sunday morning, joining the gospel choir, learning how to sing, rock and clap. <laughs> at the same time which took me a long time but it but it really and the whole vision of it being grounded in in scripture and the sense that god had interrupted you know the history of mississippi with hmm. with this thing of course i was also very idealistic
1: yeah i can understand being drawn and right. i can understand you intended to spend a year Yeah, six months. Yeah, but I'm sure it was. It wasn't all
0: peaches and cream for you, was it? Well, at first, at first, it was quite. I mean, my idealism was was there for intact for for several months. But that's got to wear off. Well, it it wore off quickly because (laughs) because it wore off about three months after I arrived, and there was a church a church meeting that was held in the neighborhood, and uh, one in the course of that meeting of this congregation that I had become part of, John's son, Spencer, stood up at the back of the room, and he asked a question. And the question he asked was, what are all you white people doing here? And then he sat down. And that was my first, that was my first introduction to, to the reality of the problem. What did he mean by that question? You know I mean, hey, isn't it obvious I'm here to you know solve poverty? I'm, I'm here, here to, to help to, you to help you, right, yeah, yeah, to do racial reconciliation, but Spencer was trying to probe to something deeper, and I didn't know I didn't know what it was, hmm. and that was my introduction to Spencer so. yeah, for
1: those who don't know the story of John Perkins, I urge you to read John's story, but Spencer was his son, and John wanted Spencer to attend an all white school or nearly all white school. yes. So he knew what it was like to be in the middle of all
0: that. He did. He did. I mean, he had lived in the segregated black side of the tracks, literally, in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And then he had integrated the school. He was one of just a few blacks. Yeah. And it was two years of, of uh, humiliation and great and great pain. In addition to that, he had gone to college in California and experienced another kind of softer but still— Painful uh, racism in California. So Spencer had a lot of um, a lot of experience that was there, a lot of baggage. So when Spencer
1: stood up in that church service and said, "What are you doing here?" Did it bond the two of
0: you? No, no. It alienated me from him. It made me scared of him because it was a very. Cha- he was challenging the white people in the room. He was challenging our motives. He was questioning our motives even, and he had a way of stating things. That was not graceful. <laughs> Spencer learned how to speak with grace, but it took a while. <laughs> yeah. So you were
1: offended by his question?
0: Yeah, I was offended. I was offended. Because you I was... were
1: there out of pure motives and idealism. And... Well,
0: that I thought. Yes, I you was. I, d- I was, and yeah. I thought I was a kind of innocent of any kind of um, racial issues. And did you want to just turn and run then? No, because there was—I um, mean, there was a lot to do. I mean, I was enjoying um, working and, and being part of a cause and all that, and the meeting dissipated. But two years after that, Spencer's question really reached its a, a, a crisis when we had a racial—almost a split, a crisis within the church. Um, and over the course of a summer, had a series of, of meetings— that the black folks called the reconciliation meetings. That's not the word I would have chosen for it. And um, the issue of, of racism was put on the table and questions of why is it that we've started, you know, all these ministries in the neighborhood, and so many of them, so many of the leaders are whites who've come in from the outside, you know, and so, so he's indicting, they're indicting me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was, and there were a number of people who left the church after that summer, not only whites, but also African-Americans. And that summer for me was really the reckoning with the racial divide and seeing that it also touched me, that this was personal. They didn't trust me, and I didn't trust them. And the question being, was I willing to stay when it got painful? Was I still committed to justice, reconciliation, and it was painful, and where also I could see it was going to cost me something. And what I learned over that summer was that for me, dealing with these issues was optional. I could choose to do it, deal with it or not deal with it. But for the African Americans and the people in the neighborhood, they had to deal with race and poverty whether they wanted to or not. So, starting with Spencer's
1: question, the, the layers began to peel back for That's you. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Did you like what you saw in well, yourself?
0: Oh, no. It was very painful. It was painful to see. My privilege. It was painful to own that I have privilege. That I, you know, things are not fair. Things are not equal. We don't all start at the same place. Some of us have inherited, you know, money. Have inherited kind of education. Have inherited privilege that gives us options. It's you know we can't say it's it's just it's God blessing us because there's injustice and equity in the world. And really reckoning with that was very painful. But what I saw at stake was, this is exactly the kind of work that the gospel and that Jesus and the God of grace um, takes us through to make us into new people. And this is what was required for us to become a new creation in that zip code. But it wasn't just about the white folks falling on their knees. The African Americans also had to learn how to let go of the bitterness how to forgive. And so it was about all of us being taken to a new place of trust and relationship and dependence upon God together. And we, it took us to a whole new level, those of us who stayed. A story of trust
1: and forgiveness. Today we'll talk more with Chris Rice coming up on First Person. Next week here on First Person, we'll talk with Christian TV news anchor, George Thomas. You know, people will watch
0: Fox News, CNN, NBC, but then they turn to CBN News. Okay, what's going on? What's God doing? And that is the tremendous privilege that we have had for 50 years of broadcasting to give us that biblical worldview.
1: He's not content to just sit in the studio. We'll meet CBN TV news anchor, George Thomas, next week on First Person. Talking with Chris Rice and Spencer Perkins' name has come up in this conversation. Uh, Spencer's with the Lord now. But uh, the two of you didn't start out well. Right. But eventually you became not only the best of friends, but you became truly brothers, didn't you?
0: Yes, we did. Um, after the crisis, um, I became part of a Bible study that Spencer and his wife started. A group of us started studying the book of Acts together. And that led us to studying the Sermon on the Mount together, and after a couple-year journey, um, our families and others uh, formed an intentional Christian community together, and uh, our families and others lived together in the what we call the Antioch community for 12 years. Where they were first called Christians. Well, that was kind of where we took the name from, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and uh, shared daily life together, ate um, ate our meals together, shared our, our money together, and uh, lived out a life of ministry together. Spence and I ended up um, doing some racial reconciliation teaching and uh, writing together. Um, so we, through that, we became we became very close friends.
1: Let me back up a bit. At what point did you decide that I'm here for longer than just a year?
0: Well, I think it was after the crisis All of us had to make that decision. We had to sign up again or not. Uh, Signing on meant continuing with this group of people who had been through the crisis together. And and it was clear that it was about the long haul, that this was a calling to the long haul together. That's the vision that God was calling us into. And that is the unfinished business of America and race, is how do we embody beloved community together in local, real places? Mm -hmm. That was the call that we were trying to live out. So I signed up for that, and I also felt the affirmation of my African American brothers and sisters saying, We need you. We want you. We trust you. Please stay here and let's make something new together. And so it was really a breakthrough to, to genuine friendship. And 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 you know, I want to say too that I'm afraid of who I would be if I had left. I saw that my own holiness was at stake, you know, that this was about knowing God and knowing Christ. And and as painful as it was, knowing Christ is about death and resurrection. It's about dying to something and living into something new, and, and I, that's what it was, and I wanted to be part of that, that way of knowing God.
1: That's powerful. That, that really is powerful. So here you are— um, in lockstep with Spencer Perkins, and just the fact that the two of you are standing up doing things together, I mean, that in itself made a statement, didn't
0: it? Yeah, Spencer and I did a lot of speaking together. And we were, but what we understood was that that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was what we were living together. And that half of our witness, when we spoke, was simply by standing Together. Yeah. Well, describe that living together, that community. Well, what was that like? Well, we bought a property in the middle of our zip code, middle of our Target neighborhood. It had two houses on it, six acres of land. We renovated the houses. We made them into different apartments for families. Um, so we lived in the houses together. We, um, we had a huge dining room table that my wife and I built that sat about 20 people.
1: Intentionally took that step, I assume.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, so, I mean, it was a, a lot of activity going on in that house. Um, we, we had a ministry of hospitality, young people from the neighborhood who were struggling with their families who live with us, um, unwed mothers um, having their first babies who live with us, guys just out of prison, a couple guys just out of prison who, who were part of our community. And um a, a kind of a self confessed southern redneck named Cecil McKinley, um, a white Mississippian who was part of so I mean this was a very unlikely group <laughs> group of people. Well, there was a lot of life in that house. What was that like? <laughs> and and what did it accomplish? Well it was it was the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you, Dickens. It was the greatest joys and the greatest and the greatest pains, all all mixed up together. It was it was it was challenging. It was joyful. It was it was. There was days you just wanted to get as far away from it as as you could. I mean, it was kind of in a way. It was kind of like being married. You know, to twenty people. It wasn't quite. But, I understand, but, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but it had to be that way, right? It
1: it had to be that intentional, that that close knit to well, that's accomplish what,
0: anything. Well, that's what we felt we were called to do. That was the that was the that was the discernment. It was that part of your felt.
1: education too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it it was very organic. I mean, if we. It, None of us would have chose to do it when we started. We backed away from the idea many times because we knew it was going to cost us Mm. something. And it did cost things, but we also gained things. Mm. So you you lose things, you gain things. Tell me about Spencer's death. How did that impact you? Well, um, about, of course, Spencer died very suddenly of a heart attack. In January 1998. He was what, 43? He was 44 years old. But several months before that, he and I went through the worst crisis of our relationship.
1: So you were still going back and forth, even though...
0: Well, this was. it it was always hard, in a way. It was joyful, but it was always hard, because Spencer and I were very different. We just didn't have compatible personalities. We loved each other, like we did love each other, like brothers. Um, but it was always hard in ways. But this was this was like almost a divorce. We're on the verge of a divorce. Mm. And through a series of miracles, God saved us and taught us about grace, taught us that the first two commandments, love God and love neighbor, are not primary. The primary truth is God's love for us and that we had our gospel had become so much a gospel of trying harder and doing more. And Spencer and I were demanding so much of each other. We had our lists. Here's what you did. Here's what you did. And through this, God destroyed the lists and gave us a new vision, what Spencer called a culture of grace. Hmm. And Spencer wrote an article called Playing the Grace Card. (laughs) We organized a conference in January of 1998, and the last night of that conference, Spencer preached that we stood side by side. Spencer preached playing the grace card. I spoke about the journey of reconciliation and why it mattered. And three days later, Spencer died um, of a heart attack. And it was the greatest loss uh, that I've ever—it was like 9-11. For me, it was like a personal 9-11. It was a before and after where my world changed. Yeah, it was an incredible loss of friendship, of ministry, um, of community. But it was God's plan. Well, you know, what God said to me in the aftermath of that was, uh, you're not indispensable, and Spencer's not indispensable. The reconciliation is my idea. So go and get some rest. And that's what our family did. What God also said to me is, I'm going to expand the idea of reconciliation. And that's what I think has happened. What I see has happened um, in the 15 years since Spencer's death, or about how many, many years it is, um, this idea has really—the um, idea of justice, reconciliation, that this these things matter for being Christian— um, there's a, there's a lot of new books that have been written, ministries that have been started. The Christian Community Development Association is flourishing. Um, and those 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 things have happened. And it, it really is not about wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it really is God's idea. And God is God is growing a movement of reconciliation. I see it wherever I go in, in the world. Um, and Spencer's I think Spencer, the loss of Spencer taught me um, really what it means for this to be God's idea and versus my idea, and it totally reshapes the way that you work when you come to that when you come to that place, when you know that it's not about you.
1: so it's still your life work, your, your calling.
0: It's, it is yeah, God gave it back to me. I mean, I never lost it, but I took you know I took several years I took a couple years of Sabbath and rest, I wrote a memoir. Uh, grace matters mm-hmm. about my book. years in mississippi because i had times, yeah. I, it was really my my way of grieving i had to get that book out of me and then i went to duke divinity school for for four years of studies so i wasn't active at all during those years and i wasn't looking for something new but god gave me something back and starting a center for reconciliation at the divinity school i now have the unexpected friendship with a ugandan um catholic priest yeah Who's a theologian. So God gave me Spencer and God gave me two incredible gifts in these two brothers who both have changed my life. And so, you know, the surprises of of letting go, of, of moving from the known to the unknown and the new life that God gives you in that is a beautiful thing.
1: Well, if you would like to read more about this story of friendship forged in difficult circumstances, Chris has written a book titled Grace Matters, a true story of race, friendship and faith in the heart of the South published by Josie Bass. Today, Chris Rice is the director of the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School. The center was founded in 2005 to inspire, inform, and support leaders, communities, and congregations to live as ambassadors of Christ's reconciliation. To learn more, visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. We've placed links to Chris and the work of the center, which you can follow for more information. As always, our website also features a calendar of upcoming guests and topics and an archive of past interviews you may have missed and want to hear in their entirety. Just go online to FirstPersonInterview.com or visit us at Facebook.com forward slash FirstPersonInterview. Next week, we'll meet George Thomas, a CBN news anchor, with a very interesting personal story which uniquely qualifies him to roam the world in search of significant news stories. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Hope you'll join us next time for First Person.